Hello, and welcome to Silk Road Rising's In Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to the lively exchange of ideas and experiences. Silk Road Rising is a community-centered, art-making, and art-service organization rooted in Asian, Middle Eastern, and Muslim experiences. Through live theater, digital media, and arts education, we challenge disinformation, cultivate new narratives, and promote a culture of continuous learning. I'm your host, Jamil Corey, co-founder and co-executive artistic director of Silk Road Rising. On this episode of In Dialogue, I'm continuing the conversation with my dear friend, colleague, and collaborator, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, Associate Professor of Theater Arts at the University of Oregon. This is the seventh of nine conversations I'm having with Malik, exploring the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements. In our previous episode, we pondered the question, how do we know if it's a Middle Eastern American play? In this episode, we're veering into somewhat edgier space and asking, are Arab Americans and Middle Eastern Americans white? This conversation was recorded on August 23rd, 2019. Welcome, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. Well, Jamil, I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> and honestly, uh, if you look back on the history of Arab Americans specifically, but of course all Middle Eastern Americans, there has been a desperate desire to become white. Because as we know, these racial categories are, are constructs. There, there is no real whiteness, so, so to speak. But if you look back at uh, US history and the, the Naturalization Act restricted citizenship to, quote, any alien being a free white person, um, that's well and good unless you are an indentured servant, a slave, or a woman. And so um, that was the definition the founders put forth. And from that moment on, everyone was then struggling to fit that definition. Because if you did not fit that definition, you were a second class, third class, fourth class citizen, frankly, in this country. So, so immigrants from Arabic speaking countries, from, from Turkey, from Iran, uh, had to somehow fit themselves into a paradigm of whiteness or legally. maybe a type of whiteness legally legally and this is the the most interesting part is all of this was done through the courts because you literally had to litigate for your whiteness um and why um in and we were talking about the 1893 world's fair that was held here in chicago um, and one of the journalists said uh with their brown complexions medium stature lithe wiry and muscular forms keen, dark, restless eyes, the people composing this group plainly show their Eastern origin. So, you know, they were being perceived as non-white just from the, from the very get-go. The first Middle Easterners that arrived here in the U.S. were automatically seen as darker, oriental, brown people from Turkey. Swarthy. Swarthy yeah. people from Turkey. So, so the, the look of whiteness was not on their side. So then they had to litigate for it within the courts and they literally started going to the courts and fighting for whiteness in the courts because otherwise you were not legitimately white. And what ends up happening is that those with lighter complexions and mainly Christian backgrounds were given the benefit of the doubt of whiteness. Whereas if you were darker or Muslim or connected to any kind of Muslim uh, sect, then you were often denied whiteness. So, so that 
conflation of Christianity with Americanness, with whiteness, once again sort of worked to the benefit of certain immigrants. And of course those earlier waves were overwhelmingly Christian. That's true. And, and that started to shift over time. So you are the son of two Lebanese immigrants. That's right. Uh, and self-identify as Arab American and Lebanese American. Okay. Uh, are you white? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that uh, the idea of whiteness is something that when you grow up in this country is um, it's a kind of ideal that is imposed, right? Yeah. That if you are white, there's something. And I think colorism, of course, is found in all cultures around the world. So it's not like colorism isn't something that you wouldn't find in South America or in Europe or in, in South Asia, etc. So I think that whiteness for me was always this contingent category. I knew I wasn't white because my skin was darker. I, was, I looked different from... Uh, from a lot of the people I went to school with, for instance. Um, and so I never felt white myself because I was never treated as white. I mean, I, I remember growing up and, and very clearly being demarcated as an other. Um, and every time something would happen in the news, you know, automatically, I became the de facto Arab. So <laughs> if something happened in Libya, I became Libyan. If something happened yeah. in Palestine, I became Palestinian. You know, it just was, you just kind of slid wherever the current events took you. Um, and so, and no. You were also raised in a largely Latinx milieu, perhaps. Well, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is, yeah. you know, comprised of Anglos, uh, Latinos, Native Americans, and many others. Right. But definitely in that milieu, people didn't know what to make of me. And having a last name, Najar, they often thought it was Spanish, so they say Nahar. Oh, so again, okay. you know, nobody knows quite where to put you, and that becomes an interesting uh, categorization of oneself. I always had a very keen sense of being different. Uh, I, I read white, of course, and I am perceived as white. Uh, so I never quite know how to answer the question. I always struggle with it. Because on the one hand, I am absolutely the beneficiary of a great deal of white privilege and of male privilege. Uh, on the other hand, I'm half Arab. Uh, and my father confronted, you know, dealt with racism. Uh, and I don't consider Arabs to be white. I think having an Arabic name like Jamil uh, complicates that. Yes. And people are never quite sure what to make of that. Uh, I have often been assumed to be African-American before I walk into the room. And, and I think also, uh, I took a, a film uh, casting uh, class once, and uh, everybody was being typecast, so they turned to one of my classmates and they said, you'll play the best friend, and somebody else, you'll play the teacher, and somebody else, you'll play the, you know, the uh, ingenue. And they, when they came to me, the, the casting director said, they won't know what to do with you. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, and I think that's true. I think that, you know, uh, and it's a, it's a microcosm of a larger situation where we, we're neither nor, we, we don't quite fit in certain uh, paradigms. Right. And I think it's especially compounded if you have an accent, if you dress in a religious way, um, if you are on the darker end of the spectrum, so to speak. Right. Um, all of those things, I think, compound the situation. And, and historically, let's be honest, I mean, this has been coded in racist language from the beginning. There was a senator uh, in the early 20th century from North Carolina who said, Syrians are the, de the degenerate progeny of the Asiatic hordes, the spawn of the Phoenician curse. So 
you know, there was <laughs> from the very early days, there was this sense that they, that there was something other about these people. They were not one of us. They were from a different horde or uh, tribe or something like that. And therefore, they never really belonged in the racial classification of the U.S. And yet there was so much pressure on people to somehow fit themselves into once again. You I know, think what, there still is. Yeah. Absolutely. Accent reduction, reduction classes, for instance, I think are very much a part of that. Right. You know, you need to diminish your otherness in order to uh, fit into the, to the general norms. Now, according to the U.S. Census, and by extension the U.S. government, which does not have a classification and official category for MENA people, for right. Middle East, North Africa, uh, we, are, we, are, we are Caucasian. Um, and I oftentimes have referred to it as white without the benefits. Uh, where do you, and now, of course, you know, there's been such a, a battle for, for decades to change that so that there actually be a legal category. Uh, and, and now, under the current administration, people are rethinking that maybe we don't want that category because that then, you know, we, we subject ourselves to, to the surveillance state somehow. Or government to, profiling. Uh, government, yeah, and suspicion. and. Uh, and, and so forth. Uh, where, where did you see a, a sort of shift in consciousness uh, amongst at least some Arab Americans away from, oh, we all want to be white or we all want to fit into, you know, this, this, this kind of suburban American, you know, 1950s, whatever American dream. Uh, and, and we want to assert our own um, specific or individual uh, racial identity. I think a lot of Arab American scholars point to the post-1967 era. Um, after uh, the occupation of the Palestinian territories, um, there was a great migration from Palestine. There were people coming from all parts of the, the Middle East to the United States, um, and many of them were Muslims. So you didn't have the same sort of mainly Christian migration that you had in the first and second wave of Arab American migration. You had more uh, Muslims coming uh, to the U.S. Uh, with that, um, you had people coming from different parts of the Middle East, i.e. the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, from different places uh, in North Africa, etc. So I think that we saw a shift there that happened demographically. Um, also, after the 1979 revolution in Iran, there was another migration of Iranian Americans, or Iranians rather, who became American. Uh, and, uh, and that was another demographic shift that occurred within the Middle Eastern um, American community. Um, but also, I think that it was the, the civil rights movement and the consciousness that was brought up by the groups that we had discussed in earlier episodes, the university students, because the ones that came after 67 were highly educated and university trained and university students. So there was a kind of activism that wanted to reclaim their Arabness, their Iranianness, uh, whatever it may be, um, because they were trying to say, no, we are no longer going to try to fit into a box that A, doesn't belong to us, and B, is we never really were allowed to fit in to begin with. And so there was more of that activism. That said, there are still, and I think to this day, I think there are two tracks. I think there are Middle Eastern Americans that still are fighting for their whiteness and believe in their whiteness. And the other track that say, no, we never were white. We'll never be white in the eyes of most uh, Americans. And therefore, why don't we just claim ourselves as who we are? And I think that's, that dichotomy still exists. I, I want to go back to the, the issue of religion. 
most of the the Christians who came in those early waves and continue to, to come to uh, were and are Eastern Christians, so Eastern Orthodox, you know, Byzantine Catholic, so forth. So even in the in a, in a majoritarian Christian context, uh, we were seen as somehow strange. You know, our, our rituals, our practices, the aesthetics of the churches uh, were very much seen as other. Uh, and we are quickly conflated with Muslimness. Exactly. Uh, so I, I, you know, what, whatever one's background may be, Baha'is or Astrian, Druze, uh, Christian Jews from the Middle East, uh, that, that sort of, um, you know, that monolithic Muslim uh, enemy, you know, that monolithic Muslim boogeyman uh, somehow still pertains to us all. Uh, and I think that many of us have taken up the struggle against Islamophobia in part for that reason. I mean, obviously, because we're in solidarity, many of us are in solidarity uh, with um, Muslim Arab Americans and Middle Eastern Americans, but also because, frankly, it has affected us, it has targeted us. Uh, and that is another way of denying whiteness. That is another way of creating a kind of um, ascribing a type of brownness onto people because Islam is not within, you know, although many Turks can be perceived as white somehow, certainly many Syrians, many Lebanese people, sure. Balkan Muslims, you know, from Bosnia, Albania, so forth. Um, but, but somehow the borders of whiteness stop at Christianity. They somehow stop at... Um, uh, the, the Iranian situation is, is such an interesting one because of the many Iranians subscribe to the idea of being Aryan. Right. And, and of course, I think in the Western consciousness, Aryanism is so much associated with, with Nazi Germany right. and with you know, sort of the ideology of, of Nazism. Could, could you maybe speak to that? Well, yeah, I, the, the Pers I'll say Persians because some don't care for the term Iranian because it's so closely associated to the current Iranian regime. But the, uh, many Persians feel that they are Aryan, uh, i.e. peoples, the, the original Aryans uh, from the, the area that is now Iran. Um, and they they very much subscribe to whiteness. There's, there's a belief that, no, we are the original whites. Um, but what ends up happening is the, the breakdown occurs when you come to places like the United States where you may, you may believe that yourself. You may subscribe to that yourself. And again, I'm going to disassociate Aryan, Iranian Aryanness with anything that has to do with Nazism or German Aryan sure. notions. Those are totally different notions. I'm in no way conflating them. But what I am saying is this notion of them being the original Aryans and then coming to this country saying we're white and not being perceived as white at all has caused a schism between that first generation that emigrated to the U.S. and their children who are realizing, no, that white privilege does not extend to me in any way, shape, or form. And as a matter of fact, there, there are some great books written about this, and, and there are stories about how, for instance, Iranians would move to Beverly Hills. And they would be like, here we are, we have money, we have businesses, we're moving into Beverly Hills, the great, you know, this is where you show that you've made it in America, so to speak, and if you're living in Los Angeles, for instance, and the neighbors around them become horrified because, you know, maybe the way they decorate their homes or the way that they live their lives, and they're like, no, no, you aren't the same white 
people that we are. <laughs> so, you know, and they're literally either people leave those areas or they start to form uh, neighborhood commissions to get those people out of those areas. I mean, it's really something that this schism occurs. So, so Beverly Hills being this kind of, you know, iconic community in terms of of affluence exactly. or a type of success, material And success. as we know, the Iranians in Los Angeles, uh, there, there's an area in Los, West Los Angeles called Tehranjalis. Right. Because right. it's, you know, it's got uh, a lot of the, pre, uh, the, the, the pre-revolution Iranians set up shop there. And you, to this day, you can see books about the Shah and the desire to go back to a pre-Islamic revolution Iran uh, that is very present there. I, I want to shift to the topic of anti-blackness right. and how anti-blackness historically had been uh, this sort of whitening tool right. and that, you know, immigrants from East Europe, from, from Southern Europe, from the Middle East, who are always sort of suspect whites or once again on that kind of not quite white continuum, sure. proved their whiteness or earned their whiteness through demonstrating anti-black attitudes. Uh, you know, and the idea was, you think you're against black people, I'll show you. Um, do you want to maybe chime in about... It, this is one of the most unfortunate parts of what happened in the civil rights movement. And I think this happens anytime you have a scarcity of resources. You have too many people fighting for too few resources. So what ends up happening is, I'm just going to have to push other people out of the way in order to get what's mine. And I think that occurred during the civil rights movement. I think, unfortunately, a lot of Middle Easterners, a little Middle Eastern Americans, um, either they brought prejudices with them from the Middle East, right. or when they were here, they saw so few resources, they said, well, I can't worry about trying to help them. I've got to focus on my needs. And so that paucity of resources caused groups to start to try to stratify themselves closer to whiteness and further away from blackness. And I think that's what's led to some of the racial tensions that we see in a lot of major cities to this day. And it's very unfortunate. I mean, certainly you, there is now a consciousness amongst a lot of younger Arab and Middle Eastern Americans, uh, people who might identify with the political left, right. that we have a place in a multicultural, multiracial mix, and that we have a somewhat distinct place and something to contribute to that. Uh, obviously, we're here as theater makers, uh, so you know the contribution of MENA communities to the American theater or to American literature uh, has has always been very important to us. And yet, we have encountered uh, artists who kind of run from the label, who kind of run from the idea of being part of a multicultural conversation and, and don't want to be perceived as, as Arab or Iranian or Turkish or right. Kurdish or you know, whatever the case. Well, and, and because they've been, they've been burned, you know, to be honest. Uh, we had a, a prominent uh, African-American playwright that came to the University of Oregon several years ago, and he turned to my African-American colleague and said, if you keep doing African-American plays, you'll never get tenure. You know, and that was his experience. He was never allowed into the, into the academy in his own lifetime. And he was cautioning this young, brilliant scholar, you're never going to make it if you keep doing these plays. Get away from it. You know, this is unfortunate. This is the, the, this, these are the, the bitter dregs of the racism in this country. And I think that a lot of Middle Eastern American uh, writers felt the same way. And, and one writer I, I worked with, a playwright, he said, call me an American artist. Do not label me with a hyphen because the minute you do my plays will not be produced they will not be published they will not be seen and therefore you're basically casting me out 
<laughs> casting me east of Eden, if you will, uh, if, if, if you do so. So there's a lot of pain there. I don't, I don't blame them I, 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 in as much as I, I feel a kind of sorrow and almost a, a pity for them for, for being in a place where they're not allowed to express themselves fully because of the racial situation of, in this country. And also because of that history of litigating for whiteness, right. we are in some respects late to the diversity and table. And, and I think that's really another, if you want to say a mark against our community, yeah. is they spent so much time trying to be white that they forgot the fact that there were other communities that were struggling because they were more visibly different. Right. And therefore, uh, they a lot of, our, the people in our community passed uh, and got away with passing for a very long time and not having to pay the price the, the, of, of uh, you know, American citizenship based on whiteness. And, and certainly in, in our realms, we, because we are committed to coalition politics and to coalition building amongst theater makers, uh, we do find ourselves having to catch up in a way, and we do find ourselves often being uh, an, an afterthought, you know, or, um, you know, kind of the bottom of the totem pole. Right. Uh, and of course, we don't want those hierarchies to begin with, and we don't want to be, you know, pitted against each other that way. Uh, but because of this indeterminate racial status, uh, I think so many people, you know, in, also in communities of color, have not quite known what to do with us. Uh, we, many of us are from Asia, you know, Lebanon and Syria are, are in Asia. Are in Asia. <laughs> uh, we are not considered Asian American. We do not claim that, uh, that signifier. Uh, many of us are from Africa. Right. We are from Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia. Uh, we are not considered African Americans. Right. Uh, so, you know, in the case of the Arab world and, you know, the Berber world and, and so forth, we do straddle. Uh, two continents, and yet in the context of American identity politics, we are still trying to figure out um, how to fit in. I, th I think that question of passing that you just brought up is also really important. And I think it'll come up later when we talk about casting in, yes. in, this, in this context. But you know, there is, there is one bright spot if we can focus on, which is hip hop. Um, it's yeah. amazing how hip-hop has transcended cultures. And there are Palestinian hip-hop groups, there are a lot of Arab hip-hop groups, Arab-American hip-hop artists. And I think that that's really wonderful because here's a place where, you know, the, 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 the walls, if you will, that siloed us off from one another, let's say from the African-American community and the Middle Eastern community, are breaking down because there's a common shared language. And they're both able to use this musical form for resistance purposes, uh, and I think that's a, a. I think that's one example that we should look to as a hopeful sign that there are ways that art can transcend all of these issues. And that's a kind of cultural interchange or a kind sure of is. polyculturalism, you know, where we're meeting uh, and and essentially creating together uh, and and exchanging. A heartfelt thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, for such inspiring conversation, and a big thanks to you, our listening audience, for joining us at In Dialogue. Bravo to Alex Gresh for recording and editing this episode, and to Andy Lynn for production managing our show. Over the next two episodes, we'll be continuing our exploration of the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements with Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. 
In our next episode, Malik and I will be putting the spotlight on the intersectional identities of Middle Eastern Americans. This podcast is a project of Silk Road Rising. As a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support of those who engage and enjoy our work. We hope that you will support our ongoing efforts and consider making a donation. To do so, please visit our website at www.silkroadrising.org. That's silkroadrising.org. Click on donate and thank you for your support. Until next time, keep helping the world heal.